We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Well, good morning, Emmaus. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew Barrett. I'm one of the pastors here. Emmaus kids, you are dismissed. Go learn great things about our great God. I love the smiles on your faces. Emmaus, what a joy it is this morning to see you sing. I don't know if I missed something from Sunday to Sunday, but this morning in particular, you're singing loud. Praise God. Well, a few announcements before we start our sermon this morning from 1 Timothy. Uh, First of all, uh, this Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, This is a wonderful opportunity for you as a believer in the God of life to pray for those, uh, both the unborn, but also those who are carrying the unborn. What an incredible miracle that is, that God would do a work in their hearts. And also prayer for those all throughout Kansas City, but across our country, who are working, laboring hard to support those mothers who have those precious lives within them. Take time this afternoon, maybe individually or perhaps as a family, to pray for all of those involved We live in a culture of darkness and death, and yet we worship a God of life. So take time this afternoon to pray to this great God that He may bring life once more. Also, there are two ways that you can give here at Emmaus. We have a box outside in the lobby. Uh, If you're old-fashioned like me and you need paper, uh, please put uh, cash or a check in that box. But if you are more technological... Uh, Like a lot of my students, uh, you can go online to our website and give there. Uh, Your giving, we do not take it for granted. Uh, Your your elders, we appreciate it so much because it allows us to serve you and for you to serve one another in so many ways throughout the year. So please consider giving to Emmaus for the sake of discipleship, the preaching of the gospel on Sunday morning and so much more. At this time, I'm also going to invite Hannah uh, to come forward. She has an announcement as well. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Like you mentioned, my name is Hannah Schreiner. Um, I'm the director of women's ministry here at Emmaus. And I wanted to let all you ladies know of our upcoming Bible study. So um, at Emmaus, we do spring and fall Bible studies. And uh, our spring one is coming up. We're studying through the book of Exodus. It's a 10-week study. And we have our kickoff. I think it's moved on. But our kickoff is... um, That is distracting. Um, Focus. It is February 4th at 6.30 at Northland Baptist. Um, But we have sign-ups for the Bible study if you would like to participate. Uh, You should have gotten a link through your email um, from the women's email. If you didn't, uh, email us at women at maskc.com and I can send you that link. Or if you're a member of our uh, Facebook page uh, for Advanced Women, it's also on there. But 
sign up deadline is tomorrow so that we can get the books ordered and get groups organized. So if you are wanting to participate in that study, please go ahead and sign up today or tomorrow and we'll get you put into a group and uh, you get to study through the book of Exodus. It'll be a great study and we hope you'll join us for our kickoff. And like that crazy announcement, our uh, women's retreat is coming up soon. So that will be announced at our event. Um, thanks. I'm so jealous because I love the book of Exodus so much. Maybe there's a way I can sneak in the back. <laughs> I've never been kicked out of a Bible study before, but it might be worth it. Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 12 through 20. Very rich verses indeed. And... As you turn there, I think it's appropriate to begin this way. If you have been at Emmaus, well, you know that uh, each month we take time in the service to confess the Nicene Creed, an indispensable component of our liturgy. But have you ever noticed the very end of that creed? The very end reads, we believe, we the church believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That word apostolic, what does it mean? Well, it claims that our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, appointed apostles to whom he revealed the mystery of the gospel. Apostles whom he also then commanded to go and make disciples, teaching them everything that Jesus himself commanded. Last year, we spent considerable time joining Luke on a pilgrimage through the book of Acts. And we discovered that the apostles were obedient to Christ. We witnessed Peter and John at the beginning of Acts plant the seeds of the gospel as the Holy Spirit then made those seeds grow into the church. What a church it was that sprouted first in Jerusalem. Acts took an abrupt turn, a sudden turn, an abrasive turn when Luke changed tracks from Peter suddenly to Paul, that most vicious persecutor of the way. But God turned that hater of Christianity into one of its leading advocates. So that this apostolic message spread to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Something that continues to this day. Emmaus, I know that you are Bible readers. And as Bible readers, no doubt you are familiar with Paul the missionary. But I sometimes wonder if we become so familiar with Paul the missionary that we sometimes miss the scandal of it all. It can be lost on us so easily. Do you think that Paul ever forgot what he had done? I don't think so. Putting to death Christians? That is a reputation no one wants resurrected. If I were Paul, part of me would have done everything possible to hide my past. Imagine yourself in his shoes. 
You held the, the coats of men who picked up stones to kill Stephen. And you did it with a smile of consent on your face. His blood is on your hands. And now, years later, you are entrusted with fortifying this pastor named Timothy so that he can lead the church. But your past is stained with the blood of the saints. It's a past that does not exactly galvanize confidence, but guilt and tremendous, tremendous shame. When we open Paul's letter to Timothy, it's not the picture we see of Paul, is it? In fact, we meet a Paul who is quite confident. Paul's certainty is not the hubris of a fool who is either oblivious to what he's done or indifferent to the harm that he's caused. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Paul hides nothing. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So how can this apostle be so confident? We need to know the answer to that question this morning because we are claiming that our existence depends on the credibility, the surety of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So here is the answer. Are you ready? Paul is so confident Because he sees his conversion as God's very mechanism by which Christ demonstrates both the power and the patience of divine grace. Let's now look at the signs of grace that Paul exhibits. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul, his confidence is exuberant. He begins with gratitude because his strength, he says, is not my own. He has been upheld this, time, this whole time by Christ Jesus. Now, Paul could, can leave you a little perplexed at this point. Especially when you consider what he says next. He begins first by attributing his strength to Christ, only to then say that Christ has given him this strength because he has been judged faithful. So which is it? Well, I don't think that Paul means that God peered into the future, saw that Paul would be faithful, and then decreed him worthy to be saved, let alone an apostle. In fact, Paul admits He was nothing but a violent opponent of of this Messiah. If God had foreseen anything, it was not faith, but obstinate unbelief. Jesus once said to his disciples in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And when we look at them, who they were, isn't he right? 
Paul is no exception. He was appointed to the service of Christ because the God who chose him while he was still a rebel has judged him faithful in Christ Jesus. The grace of Christ was not given to Paul because he was faithful. It was given to Paul so that he would be made faithful in Christ Jesus. Some older translations tend to capture this point when they say Christ counted Paul faithful, putting him into the ministry. Of course, if you have read ahead, you may know that Paul, even as an apostle, is slandered all the time. It's a side note to some of you who I know have ambitions and aspirations to be a pastor one day. This is what Paul experienced. Do not be surprised when you who are no apostle must endure the same. Paul was slandered in the first century as an apostle. Leaders who questioned his authority as an apostle. Where then did Paul look for comfort? Where did Paul go in those dark moments for assurance? Christ alone. Solus Christus. It's as if Paul said, friends, let them slander me. Let them have their best swing. I have Christ. And that is enough. May us the apostolic foundation of the church. It is not based on the merits of the apostles, but was inaugurated on the unbelief of blasphemers like Paul. And the stormy seas of that first century, and ever since, the confidence of the church, it rests on nothing less than the apostolic word that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A more Catholic, meaning universal, fortification you cannot find than this. Now if you doubt whether the promises of Christ are the foundation on which this apostolic church in which we participate the foundation on which this apostolic church is built, look with me then at verses 13 and 14. After confessing himself to be a blasphemer, Paul then says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Is Paul excusing himself? Is he making an excuse for his unbelief? As if the ignorance, his ignorance justifies somehow what he did? Well, there are two types of ignorance. There is, on the one hand, ignorant, a type of ignorance where you act ignorantly. And second of all, there is what we might call acting through ignorance. 
What's the difference? Well, a person acts ignorantly when he does evil, but would do evil anyways, even if he knew it was evil. Some of those who put Jesus to death act ignorantly because Scripture tells us actually that when they accused Jesus, they fabricated stories about him even though they knew he had done nothing wrong. Friends, that is to act ignorantly. But there's another type of ignorance. There's the type of ignorance in which we might act through ignorance. This occurs when a person does evil that he would not do if he knew it to be truly evil. It seems that Paul acted through ignorance. He persecuted the church because he truly believed Christians blasphemed the God of the Hebrew Scriptures that he had dedicated his entire learning and life to. Yet once Paul was confronted with the truth, who is none other than the resurrected Christ Himself, he saw that he was the blasphemer all along. And yet, his ignorance was so embedded in self-righteousness in the law that it took nothing less than this risen and ascended and ruling Christ, the Lord Himself, to overcome Paul's hostility. I think we sometimes can assume that power is a type of just brute tyranny that corrupts. But God's power is so pure It is so actual that Paul compares it to water that overflows in abundance like a flood that overruns with faith and love. Christ Jesus purchased you. The Holy Spirit confers faith and love within you. Maeus, do you believe in the power of this Christ to save? That is the central question this morning. Do you believe in the power of the grace of Jesus Christ to save? When you enter covenant, the covenant of membership here at Emmaus, the elders ask you, what is the gospel for that reason? What is the gospel? Look at verse 15. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. When I look at you, I see a church that believes the gospel. Christ was born to save sinners. But Emmaus, let me ask you an uncomfortable question. Do you believe that Christ came to save the worst of sinners? Do you? And I'm not talking about what you say to one another to save face. I'm talking about what is in your heart right now. Do you really believe that Christ came to save the worst of sinners? 
Or have you so dressed up Christianity that your Jesus is far, far too refined, far too sophisticated, far too cultured, far too wealthy, far too political, far too on-brand, far too churchy to sit down and eat a meal with a man whose conscience did not flinch at taking money from his own people to profit their oppressors. With a woman who would have sex with anyone for money. With a diseased community no longer allowed into society. And let me be very clear with you. I am not referring to a Jesus that merely offered them a way out. I am referring to a Jesus who brought them into the people of God and sat them head of the table. He held no honor from them. Emmaus, if you if you cannot embrace the tax collector, the prostitute, or the leper, then what will you do when you meet Paul? You think they're sinners? Do you know Paul? Here's a man And maybe this is especially relevant in this room. Here's a man who is so religious that he put another man to death in the name of God. Only to then travel from city to city to city to look for families that he could eradicate from society. Our society has words for men like that today. If your gospel has no grace for a sinner like this, do you believe the gospel at all? For you have believed in a Jesus that is far too small. Edomaeus, your pastor's can tolerate zero pretentiousness. Because the second you judge someone unworthy of the gospel, you spread a virus around this place that says our God is not really omnipotent. Paul is not some miracle, some exceptional case of God's grace. Paul is you. Paul is me. Christ came to save sinners and we are the foremost. Maus should be a place where anyone can come through those doors and you and you and you in the back you should be the first out of your seat running to them turning around after the service to say to them, you think you're a sinner. Let me talk to you about what God has done to rescue me. For the church, 
Who are we, after all? We are an embassy where the power of God's grace is displayed. How? It is displayed by a thousand portraits on the wall of redemption, each and every one another witness to his infinite, immeasurable, and boundless power. We can't stop there, though, can we? Paul doesn't. Look with me at verse 16. Because God's grace not only displays His power, but the power of His patience. Something we would never expect. We often think of power as this immediate dominance, but God's power is so prevailing because He endures evil against His name and, listen to me, even at the expense of His own people. Imagine that. What, think, ask yourself this question. Why would this God permit Paul, the persecutor, a militant Christ-hater, murderer, to persist? Day after day, even to the point of killing his own church. Why would God do this? Well, I think your answer is found in verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. John Calvin says, For when He, who had been a fierce and savage beast, was changed into a pastor... Christ gave a remarkable display of His grace from which all might be led to entertain entertain a firm belief that no sinner, how heinous and aggravated soever might have been His transgressions, had the gate of salvation shut against Him. Our God often endures evil to display the perfection of of His patience so that many other haters of Christ would become lovers of our Lord. His patience is His power. If you are sitting there as someone who refuses to submit to King Jesus because your sin is not only perverse, but so long-standing. A lifetime of hedonism, perhaps, or skepticism, or resentment, or indifference, or hypocrisy. You have no idea how patient our God can be. Imagine a king who works day and night so that his son one day could have his inheritance. The fullness of it. His kingdom. Only for that son to disown him. To take his inheritance premature. And to spend it on prostitution. And then when he had spent it all and was starving to death. He returns to his father's kingdom hoping He could maybe become a servant because he's no longer a son. 
And then he discovers that his father, the king, is standing there. Little did he know he was waiting for him this entire time. Looking for him long before he ever thought about looking back to his father. And at the first sight of him, his father humiliated himself. Started running in front of his entire kingdom. So shameful to run like this as a king with no dignity intact. To bring his son home. And when his son returned to his father's kingdom, a party was waiting. He was lost, but now he has been found. Our God, what does Jesus tell us? He says, our God is a shepherd. He never rests until his sheep are found. The church father, Augustine, He once said, when it seems impossible for the shepherd's sheep to be found, he will find them. The fog is dense, the storm cloud thick, but nothing escapes his eye. So why do you keep hiding from him? He sees all. Why do you keep running from him? The very one who has sacrificed his choice lamb to bring you into his fold. Your sins may be great. You may think they're great. But my friend, I doubt they can match the blood of the lamb. Why do you not come? Come. A table has been spread for you. And your king is ready for you. At this point in 1 Timothy 1, what else could Paul possibly say? Do you get the sense that he can barely contain himself? Look at verse 17. Someone once said to me, Hey, when are you going to move on from the doctrine of God? Well, here's my answer. I will happily move on as soon as you can explain to me how salvation is possible apart from who God is. For unless our God, look at verse 17, unless our God is a God of divine simplicity, A God without parts or passions. He will always be prone to fall apart on us. Requiring another Lord to rule Him. A King far more complete, far more capable of governing a world in chaos. And unless He is immortal, the King of the ages, never vulnerable to a succession of moments, but timeless and eternal, He will never come through on His promise of eternal life. But His Word will always remain susceptible to fluctuation. What a skeptic that would make of you. 
and unless he is invulnerable as the invisible God, as the only God, as Paul calls him, a God who is, what does Exodus and Deuteronomy say? A God who is without form. Well, he will be nothing more than an idol that we make in our own image out of our own jewelry. Not the God who is so immense, so immeasurable, that he beckons our honor and glory forever as we tremble at the foot of the mountain. The church over the last century has become very comfortable with a relational God of mutuality. A God acted upon by others and affected by change and time. Merely a being among other beings. A God who is a person like us, but with attributes in greater measure. That is a God who may feel safe to you, but that is not a God who can save you. If at Emmaus it feels like we never stop talking about God, it's because we know that unless He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who alone then is worthy of our praise because no one has ever seen Him or can see Him and live unless this is the God that we worship and preach and talk about in our community groups as we make disciples. Then there is no hope for the worst of sinners. There is no hope left for them. The power of God's grace depends on Him who has eternal dominion. And if that doesn't have something to do with who God is, then we shouldn't be calling ourselves Christians anymore. Everything hinges on the power of this God's patience. Everything. So far, we have followed Paul's lead. But Paul is not finished yet. Just when you think, after this beautiful doxology in which he leads you into the courts to praise God, Paul takes a polemical turn. Look at verse 20. We followed his lead, placing no little emphasis on the power of God's patience for the salvation of the worst of sinners. But Paul does not think that the power of God's patience means that Timothy should tolerate those in the church who blaspheme, who wage war on the faith. So allow Paul to get very practical with you as a church for a minute. In verse 20, Paul names people. You know he's serious. Hymenius and Alexander. Hymenius may be the same Name the same person, the same man that Paul names in his second letter to Timothy. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Timothy 2, Paul uses the same approach. He begins by calling Timothy to be a soldier, to wage the good warfare, as he likes to call it. Only to then name Hymenaeus as 
the one who sows what Paul calls irreverent babble. Paul is absolutely insistent. This must stop now. Or it will spread like gangrene. Apparently Hymenaeus, maybe among other things, but one of the things he taught was that the resurrection had already occurred. But notice something. For Paul, doctrine is never removed from the Christian life and doxology. Or the life and soul of the church. Never. Paul never severs false doctrine from the purity of God's people. Never. He says Hymenaeus is swerving from the truth. And he will lead others into ungodliness. You see the connection? Swerving from the truth. From true teaching. From sound doctrine. Ungodliness. Paul has no category for our contemporary conception or divide or bifurcation between those two. That would be strange to him. And so in this first chapter, in his first letter, Paul is just as adamant. Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says they have made shipwreck of their faith. And Paul worries that if Timothy tolerates those in the church who oppose the faith, then others will be shipwrecked along with them. Paul is swift to action. Look at verse 20. It doesn't get any stronger than this. I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. When Paul says he's handed them over to Satan... He means excommunication. Paul understands that God will not tolerate those who profane the purity of the faith. If Timothy does not act fast, the light of the gospel could be extinguished. And the whole church could be shipwrecked on those stormy seas of heresy which leads to ungodliness. But who is Timothy to take on this charge? I mean, can you imagine how overwhelming that task of discipline might be for this younger pastor? Paul opened his letter by placing his confidence in the power of God's grace. Now he turns to Timothy and says, you do the same. Ultimately, Timothy was not appointed to the church by men, but by God. Verse 18 just pops right out of you. It's so unusual. Paul says, The Spirit of God delivered prophecies to the church that preceded and confirmed God's choice of Timothy for the ministry. Now, many in the New Testament did not have a ministry that was directly confirmed like this, at least, by divine revelation. But Timothy's path to the office of elder was lined, was coated with God's seal, marking him off for the church's sake. And on that sure footing, Timothy could then be confident following the example of Paul. But confident to do what? Confident, Paul says in verse 19, 
to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. He faced incredible opposition from within the church, but he could rest assured that his entry into the church was not impulsive and it wasn't imprudent. God himself placed his seal on Timothy. So that Timothy's responsibility is then to cultivate a good conscience, which means his conscience is clear as long as he guards the faith and does not turn aside. That is what it means to have this good conscience. So here is the dividing line. Do you see it? Timothy stands firm wielding the shield of faith with what some have called an honest zeal. An honest zeal. While others, on the other side of that dividing line, others, some of the men that Paul names, they have forfeited a clear conscience by throwing into question the mystery of the faith, leading others into ungodliness. I can't help but mention John Calvin again, the reformer, captured this so well. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Why would he be so bold to say that? Because it pours contempt on God and his gospel. It tears the church from its apostolic foundation. Over the last several years, Emmaus, like Timothy in Ephesus, has entered at times into the stormy seas of church discipline. We have sometimes seen the unity of Christ's church disrupted by those who persist in error and double down on their bad conscience, making shipwreck of their faith. In obedience to the scriptures, we, following Paul, have handed them over to Satan. Our purpose, though, like Paul's, is the hope of redemption. Did you notice how Paul concludes? He says he has handed Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Discipline You see, it serves multiple purposes, doesn't it? Both for the obedient and for the disobedient. On the one hand, discipline keeps the church itself from shipwreck. It protects the church from impurity, disunity, and unsound doctrine. Because tolerating disobedience does unspeakable harm to the church's clear conscience. Passing off unrighteousness as righteousness. Unbelief as true faith. Insubordination as obedience. On the other hand, discipline also marks the obstinate with disgrace. It places them outside the church so that they face Satan himself to see where the dominion of darkness will lead. Now some... 
will be aggravated into further hostility as a result, confirming their ungodliness. Yet others will tremble under the dark cloud and return for reconciliation, exhibiting once more the power of God's grace. But through it all, the church has a good conscience, knowing that she has held fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Emmaus, if you stand on the sure footing of an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing judge and Savior, well, then you stand on a foundation that cannot be shaken. He knows those whom He has chosen. Emmaus, we were planted a little less than a, a decade ago among a people called Kansas City. I know that it can feel like we're just on the surface of the soil. But we cannot look and judge with our eyes. Because your heritage is ancient. Your roots are deep. You have claim to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Because you stand on the foundation of an apostolic word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, as Christ is building his church and the gates of hell, of hell itself will not prevail against you. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes you bring us to your word and passages are tough. But we see here in 1 Timothy 1 that through it all, we can magnify you as a God whose power is patience and whose patience is power, exhibiting in the most mysterious providential ways that you have sent your only begotten Son to save the worst of sinners. Lord, you have not left us as orphans, but you are building your church now the Holy Spirit is at work in our very midst, building a church on a foundation that is nothing less than the word of your promise. May we as a church, as Emmaus, rest our assurance on that apostolic word so that we are not shaken when the wind blows and the seas become stormy. In the name of Christ, the Lamb of God, we pray. Amen. I think it is fitting, isn't it? Uh, when we come into this pulpit, sometimes we don't know until we begin preparing for the sermon or even stand up here how the Lord might prepare this table through the text 
that we are preaching. But this morning's text is quite a fitting context for what you are about to do. How do you approach this table with that good conscience, that clear conscience? Well, if you approach this table on the basis of your own works and righteousness, you take the body and blood of Christ in vain. You harm the body and you harm the church and you harm the testimony of Christ. If that is you, we ask you to refrain. But we also invite you to speak with us, to speak with other, others. Because even if you are the worst of sinners, this table awaits you one day if you are united to Christ. For the rest of you, what is this table all about? I think we sometimes forget that when we approach this table, this Lord's Supper, as we call it, here we receive the promise of the gospel. It is even sealed. That promise of his word, of his apostolic word, is sealed on our conscience so that when we eat and drink, well, his word is confirmed on our conscience. The Holy Spirit Himself feeds us the gospel of Jesus Christ, confirming His promises for our salvation. And so we remember that Christ has been sacrificed. We come with rejoicing, celebrating that we are so privileged to be brought into His kingdom, to then have communion with the risen and resurrected, ascended Christ. And we are not left without hope, are we? We feast now because we know this is but a shadow of the great feast that is to come. One day you will see God in the face of Jesus Christ and we will feast forever. I invite you to come to this table. You'll come down the aisle here. Take, eat, be grateful, receive our Lord. And let's continue to worship him with the gratitude Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 1. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.